Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to this week's edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to see if there's any intelligent life out there, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hey man, I'm just hoping there's intelligent life here on this show. Well, we'll see if that's going to happen. Um, and you know what? To help that out, we've also brought in our friend, the man, Don Shanahan, who is taking this journey with us. He's a longtime contributor and friend of the show. Welcome back, Don. Thank you, Patch. Thank you, Aaron. Always great to be here. Since we had, quote, space in our podcast this month, uh, we thought <laughs> you're never going to get rid of puns with me. Uh, we thought we'd keep the pun alive by talking about the first of two space centric films. This one being the 1997 quiet sci fi drama Contact. Uh, before we get into the details, though, Aaron, I think you've got a couple of things you want to talk about. I do, I do, I do. First up, we are going to give a quick preview of Tenet, which is arriving on 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray, and DVD, and digital on December 15th. So it's right around the corner. If you're listening to this episode on release day, that means that Tenet will be available to you tomorrow. I was lucky enough, thanks to Warner Brothers, to review the Blu-ray version of this film, and this was my second time watching it. This is Christopher Nolan's time-bending blockbuster take on the spy genre. It's his first heist film since Inception. It stars John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, Dimple Kapadia, Kenneth Branagh, and, of course, Michael Caine. It's long, it has incredible action set pieces, and it is just as confusing as you've heard. <laughs> but speaking of hearing, the sound mix has been criticized heavily and... I found it really awful in my theater viewing. What I will say about watching this at home is that, yes, you can put on subtitles if you wish. I don't think that anyone should be expected to watch an English film if you're an English speaker with subtitles on in order to hear it. What I found was interesting, though, is there is a narrative reason for why you cannot understand the dialogue at certain points in this film. So while I was very upset about this after my theater viewing, I came to understand that basically it boils down to we're not supposed to understand what is being said anyway. And so I no longer have a heartache about that. So rest easy if you were worried about the sound mix being fixed. I don't really feel that it's that big of a problem here on the DVD release at all. Technically speaking, aside from that sound mix, the film is of typical high quality for a Nolan picture. It's got the great cinematography from Hoyt Van Hoytima and a banging score by Ludwig Göransson, who won the Academy Award for his work on Black Panther. It fuses jazz, classical music, hip-hop, and a whole lot more. Uh, practical effects are honestly almost unbelievable, and the VX VFX works blends in perfectly. I expect this film will most likely win the VFX Oscar. Has not a lot of competition this year, for one thing, but it is outstanding. Story-wise, uh, it's really one of those sit-back-and-enjoy-the-ride kind of pictures. It's not easy to make sense of, even on repeat viewings, and personally, I wish that Nolan had created his version of a Bond movie, maybe just a little more straightforward, but you still gotta respect the ambition as it has resulted in him creating many of my all-time favorite films. 
if you can't let go of needing to fully understand the science and just enjoy the spectacle, you are likely to have a much better time than those who can't. With regard to the special features uh, in this package, there is one big chunk of extra material. It is behind the scenes. It's kind of like a making of. It's got multiple parts to it, but you can watch it in one go. It's called Looking at the World in a New Way, The Making of Tenet. And it's an hour-long exploration into the development and the production of the film as told by the cast and crew. Now, it is mind-blowing to see some of the -the behind-the-scenes explanations on how they filmed backwards. They had to get their cameras to where they could actually film scenes in reverse, and they had to train actors to act, speak, drive, and move backwards for this movie. It is amazingly impressive, and when you rewatch the film, it makes it a lot more amazing because you are no longer thinking these are tricks. You're realizing this is something that these people put in work to accomplish. So you have to just consider it as an incredible accomplishment. I really, really enjoyed the hour long making of material on this. And I will say it's a little disappointing that there's nothing that really helps you understand the story better in this making of special features, and then there is no commentary track either, which kind of sucks. For those who do struggle understanding and thus engaging with Tenet, I would highly recommend an explanation video uh, on the New Rockstars YouTube page. It is called Tenet Explained Full Movie Timeline and Final Scene Breakdown. Now, obviously it has spoilers, but I'll tell you this, going through this explainer video And then watching these special features helped me enjoy my rewatch of the film so much more. And it went from a movie that I was so frustrated with and was just at the bottom of my Nolan rankings because I couldn't understand it to being a movie that is one of my favorites of the year because I now get what is happening and I understand the character's motivations. I know more about why. And so this is a complicated and difficult film that deals with some time travel elements. And if you struggle with understanding that on the first time around, you're going to need to give it another go. I I really do think it will be fruitful for most people. And so, hey, here we are. It's arriving on, you know, 4K Ultra HD on Tuesday, December 15th. So here's your chance. And if you weren't able to catch this in cinema because you were at home and your theaters were closed or you just were trying to stay safe, this is your opportunity to catch the biggest blockbuster of the year so far. Uh, I'm really excited about it. And I hope that many of you we'll get a chance to pick it up. The other announcement we have is just that our donor pick was chosen by our amazing patrons. We picked a Christmas movie to go over here at the end of this month, and they chose Anna and the Apocalypse by a pretty overwhelming margin. And so we will be singing our way through the end of the year with Anna and candy canes and zombies. And that should be a lot of fun. All right, Aaron, thank you for that. Thank you for the review. And yes, I'm excited about our donor pick as well. Glad the donors were able to contribute and give us that for our winner. All right, before we get into the spoilerific part of our podcast, we always like to start with our one-word takeaways. And Don, being our special guest, uh, what was your one-word takeaway for Contact? Gentlemen, my one-word takeaway for Contact was wonder. And I mean it in lots of places. Um, I think of wonder in terms of the awe that the movie gives me, the things it makes me think about. And uh, 
I think that's kind of the two lines of it. Like I, I'm in awe of watching it and what it can do and the layers it, you know, it, it weaves together and creates. But at the same time, I'm there like everybody else, likely scratching their head, going, "Gosh, could this really be? Gosh, could the implications of this, the implications of that?" And so I, I sit back and I watch that movie with wonder in terms of just the visuals and the the craft and and the, the deep storytelling that's possible there from Carl Sagan and the the heady sci-fi that is you know it, it, that is at work there but at the same time as a conflicted person and on you know it'll come up later when we get to our other topics here as a conflicted person when it comes to faith versus science i cannot help but also head scratch in a good way of like man i, I like the challenges that it gives me it makes me wonder stuff and as a teacher i eat that kind of stuff up um, I really enjoy having things I want to go learn about. I really enjoy having things I want to go research and discover, even if it's not just for teaching a lesson to my kids, but just something about, I don't know, understanding my life more and understanding our world more. And a movie like that in 1998, when I was in a, you know, just kind of as a young kid, you know, just getting into college, that movie made me head scratch better than 90% of things I've ever seen in my life. And I, it's, it, it, it kind of was an, a catalyst for me to to seek and do more, to to discover more heady science fiction, to think more about the topics that are in the movie, to discover more about Carl Sagan. All of that spun out of that sense of wonder. Great stuff, Don. And Aaron, what about you? You know, I'm going to go with the word tolerance. I feel like when filming this movie, McConaughey must have thought to himself, all right, damn it, next time I'm the one going to space. All right. And so then we get interstellar and it, it was only a, what 16 year wait to, it, he, he got there he, got he there. was like you know what i didn't get to have the fun and next time it's me but yeah. anyway my word is tolerance because of how the film handles its debate about science versus religion in such a grounded and mostly realistic and ultimately a profound way that i think inspires tolerance for both belief systems I know that we're going to dig into this, so I really don't want to say much more yet about how I feel towards the movie's accomplishment of this, but I always appreciate the equal opportunity that Faith gets in this film to be taken seriously, while simultaneously acknowledging the fanaticism that exists on that side, and yet not leaning into that as if it were the overwhelming majority of how people with Faith act and feel it's beautiful wondrous picture like don said and it's one that has grown on me with every viewing i also want to just randomly point out for no reason at all that it is refreshing to see a feminine heroine we don't talk about ellie's character enough she overcomes so freaking much with men constantly taking credit for her actions speaking over her outright ignoring her and not believing what she says she must constantly fight for her beliefs and for her words to be heard. And I love her character so much. And I'm really glad that she exists despite the battles that she has to face that she shouldn't have to. That really had nothing to do with tolerance. Maybe I guess that we need to be more tolerant of accepting women in positions of strength and power and knowledge. But whatever. Be tolerant of amazing smart girls, I guess. Great stuff, Aaron. The word that I think really sums up my experience for the first time and even more recently is the word challenging the movie came out in 97 i had just graduated from high school it's moving going to college and this was really a kind of an out of the nowhere movie i mean it was not really sitting against a lot of great movies i think batman and robin had come out or something and there were some other ones 
And contact kind of crept its way into my world right before going to a an uber conservative uh, Southern Baptist University. I see this movie and I don't recall necessarily being like, man, my faith is challenged. But I do recall looking at the world differently when it came to faith and science. And like you mentioned, Aaron, we're going to get into all that here shortly. But I think the challenging thing for me was being able to see and understand the story from a scientific point of view and also see how faith and science really interact. I was also, like you, Aaron, looking at Ellie as the one who is probably the most challenged in this entire thing, trying to overcome those things that you mentioned and having the conviction that she does to continue to move forward. Uh, there's a line near the beginning where she's being introduced to the entire team and then the entire team is getting introduced to her and there's hesitation when it's being described what she does and she goes, you know, Ellie is searching for, uh, uh, and she goes, little green men. And so she's very much aware of what she does, but it doesn't take away the fact that this is no easy road for her. I mean, yes, what she does is a little bit out there, a little bit fringe science, but she's firm in her convictions. And I think that she's up for the challenge. And what I think Zemeckis does in this film is he walks us through a really, really great character study with her, how she grows, how she learns, and how she faces those challenges. So all three of these words are completely appropriate, guys, and I'm really excited to get into the discussion. So this is our obligatory spoiler warning. If you haven't seen the movie, please do yourself a favor, spend a couple hours watching this. It's going to hopefully provoke a lot of great questions. There's a lot of great uh, writing on this movie out there from things like Psychology Today, your pop culture uh, websites, uh, movie websites. It's all over the place. It was very much not necessarily a popular movie at the time, but it's definitely created a lot of discussion and uh, hopefully we'll be a part of that here in the next couple hours with ours. So even more in spoiler free or spoilery now, here we go. Well, Don, we brought you on to the show because we knew that contact is an absolute favorite of yours. Yes, and sir. I wanted to start the conversation by asking you what makes this movie stand out to you specifically. I know you touched on a little bit of the challenges and how it kind of provokes that teacher in you, but apart from those things or maybe even expounding on those things, what is it about contact that stands out for you? Uh, a couple of things, and I know it's going to come up in lots of places the way we talk about it, but I, it just felt smarter than every other movie that was out there. You know, this is a year after a year after Independence Day when we're rooting for Randy Quaid to blow up a bunch of aliens, you know, like, and here comes this movie with with head and heart and, you, you know, that preview with, I remember the trailer, just, you know, that the throbbing beat of the signal comes up and it's like, whoa, where's that going? Where, where's that going? Wait, this, there's a signal that says this, there's a signal that says that. And it just hooked me. It hooked me on the human story. Obviously the Zemeckis name at the time, you know, drew a ton of attention. And um, no, it just it just made the boring look exciting when it was necessary, you know, and I I, I know I get crap for this all the time, but I'm not a fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I probably saw that film right around this, this same time when I started to discover a film like this, you know, coming out of high school and college. And I was bored to tears watching 2001. I'm still bored to tears to this day watching 2001. But the intellectual challenge of it, I respect greatly. But that was in that same vein, I found the intellectual challenge of this movie and it just felt smarter. And I, to do what they did to 
2001 takes you in an otherworldly place in a lot of ways, you know, just not just caveman early beginnings and the future stuff from there. But to see this movie create what it did, grounding it with the media and political influences, it just felt more tangible and more ominous than the usual pulpy brand of science fiction that comes off as, you know, like the exhibitionist fantasy. Like this is also the same summer as Men in Black, which is just silliness, you know, and and then here comes this hitting you just square between the eyes in terms of making you think. And I, that, that's what stands out for me. I've very few movies since then have done that effect to me. Like they all have some headiness. They all have some smarts, but not like this one, you know, um, I, I, I mean, we'll get to it later when we talk about influences and before and after, but at the time I'd never seen a movie do this kind of intellectual challenge like this. And that's what stood out for me. Yeah. I, I would have to absolutely agree. This seem to in some ways stick out like a sore thumb from the movies that were around it. And all those movies you mentioned, Don, I loved. I mean, I loved my ID4 experience. I love my Men in Black experience. I mean, this is the same year Titanic came out, Liar, Liar. I mean, these, it was a decent year for movies. 97 and, was solid. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I really kind of credit that to the year I graduated from high school. I think that influenced a lot of it. But if we can, if we can look at this movie as what it is, it definitely – either felt like it was I hadn't okay I hadn't watched 2001 at that point and so I felt like wow this is hitting something that I don't think has ever been done before and that was the ignorant 18 year old in me but at the same time I also saw something of looking back on it I'm like wow this this may be either both influenced and templatized by the things that came after it and I remember thinking like like you done even as challenged as I was watching the sci-fi I felt like it was explained to me in a way that made sense. Like I wasn't trying to hurt my head trying to understand this. Look, I absolutely love the big short, but I have to have the my laptop pulled up to understand some of the terminology, even if they explain it to me because it's just so complex. And watching Contact almost gave me permission to think more critically about things in general specifically oh, yeah. science and faith, but it just gave me permission going into college to say, you know what, maybe what I know here is not all there is, which I know sounds like a dumb statement, but from an 18 year old, that was like, you know, mind blowing. Yeah. And I, I think of the era and the time where today we would watch the interstellars of the world and we would have our phone in our lap or in, you know, come out of our pocket after the movie and we, we could jump onto something or, or research something. In 1997, we're still going through a card catalog. Really, like, if that bug in our head from the movie gets to us, we have to work to learn something about it further, and we definitely had to do that. It was yeah, Aaron, what about you? What's your history with Contact? Were you uh, first in line, or is this one that you revisit, or what? I don't remember the first time I've seen it. I'm sure it was back in '97 when it came out, or thereabouts. I'm, I'm almost positive, but it didn't blow me away or stick with me in any way. I actually remember a couple of years ago, somewhere it came up during a conversation in the Facebook group or something. And Don mentioned that he was a huge fan and started talking about his love of it. And I revisited it either because of that, or I was revisiting it and he came to the post and was commenting about his love for it. And that review of it that happened a couple of years ago is when I really saw it for the first time and understood it and enjoyed it for what it was. Now having the background, Patrick, like 
like you, of Interstellar and 2001 and some other things to compare it to, and realizing that it still stood amongst them very well. As I mentioned, it does grow on me pretty much with every viewing. There are little things about it that hold it back for me from like the greatness, and and they're small. I'll get to them, I'm sure, but for the most part, it is just such a well-paced telling of a story. And it doesn't go too deep. It doesn't go too long. It cuts and jumps forward in time at the perfect moments, just enough uh, of each timeline to give you what you need information-wise. And I think for me, what really makes it special and different than some other films is just that grounded and realistic nature that I mentioned, where you have the world, and or America, I guess, but having to debate this it almost feels a lot like the martian to me because you actually have to deal with people who have a faith reaction to this you have to deal with the science community you have to deal with national security and the white house and business and all of these other elements that are actually what would come into something like this happening in many many films we jump straight to we're scientists and we're going to go explore the big beyond and we don't deal with the realities or we gloss over them that the government's going to have a hand in this and there's going to be an element of having to wrestle control of your project back from them. And that is displayed really, really well in this film and it makes it feel lived in. It makes it feel less like science fiction and more like, Hey, this might actually be happening over in Arizona or wherever right now to me. And and that's the thing that I really appreciate about it to this day. Let's talk about the protagonist. Are so we talking about Tenet? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, You know, Ellie, she's this explorer from an early age who wants to connect with the unknown, whether it be a person from Pensacola, Florida, or eventually E.T., as uh, criticized by her constituents. What do you guys think makes her a different kind of scientist than those around her? Don, we'll start with you. I think two traits really come out a lot. I think it's... um, the first one is dedication. I mean, she is a tiger about her goal, her quest, what she wants to discover, what she wants to find, uh, mystery and all. I mean, she she know she I want to don't want to say she's grasping at straws because she she know she's an expert in her field and she's going about it in the most pious professional level she can grasp and reach and and scratch and and you know get grant money to reach and and she knows what she's looking for and and driven to it. So her dedication beyond the the dudes who are, you know, fishing in the office and screwing around and, you know, chugging beers, just looking at different things like, no, she's the get to work one and she's the driven one. And it's, she's not the extrovert about it. She's the introvert who's like, nope, I'm going to work. Let's go. So her dedication is is enormous compared to other scientists that just try to be always, especially movie scientists. I hate to say it like this, but movie scientists who are always just so casual. I remember recently watching uh, The Core with, uh, with uh, Aaron Eckhart where he's just such a dude, you know, like he's this, you know, he's the, you know, the kind of sort of scruffy, cool dude, college professor who just happens to be brilliant at amazing things, but just such a borderline, you know, beer swilling schlub in a way, you know, like he's a man of action because you need him to be a man of action. But I don't know if his dedication is all that there, but you get a character like Ellie and it's not, she doesn't go, she doesn't have a go mode. She doesn't have a hero mode. I know she goes on this you know amazing quest and puts herself in that seat but at the same time she's not a hero but she's just credibly dedicated the second trait i really admire about her is clarity she is forthright she is firm with what she what she knows 
and what she believes. And you don't see that a lot. Not just in a female heroine and a, and a movie scientist, but just she comes at it with a clarity to this is what I want. This is what I see. This is what should be done. And I know there's a lot of rustling back and forth with Faith and other characters and the political and social implications. But her clarity, I feel like, doesn't really waver. She might have emotional things going on between you know the losses that she's had and the family things to all that end. But in terms of what she wants and what she believes at work, so to speak, but also in her heart of hearts, I admire her clarity. And I think a lot of that echoes Sagan and just where he comes at with his perspective with his books. And that's a, to me, that's a different kind of scientist than the, yeah, the, the casual guys that just or the really, really nerdy. I think that one thing that really sets her apart in the film and this is, you know, fictionalized characters that we only are getting these scientists to compare. So I don't want to compare her to all scientists. I don't want to make that broad statement, but compared to the scientists we see and we learn about in the film, she is coming at this from a pure standpoint of wanting to know and answer questions about science. She's, I guess you would say, uncorrupted by the business aspects of science or even by the incredible amount of failure that she has experienced. Like some of her colleagues have expressed they're just, they're sort of out of gas, you know, they like, they, they do this for so many years and for so long and without actually finding anything, she's relentless about it. And she is determined to, continue to push this further until she finds the thing that she is seeking and she believes with all of her heart is out there. And so I would say she shows a dedication to it that is much less uh, able to be manipulated like Drumlin uh, is. I mean, he's the, the absolute you know contrast to her. And then the other big thing that I think sets her apart is we get her backstory. So we understand that there's an element of emotional connection here for her to her father we know why she feels the way she does we know what is pushing her further and further into this uh, work uh, that she is doing and so because of that we're able to relate to her as a scientist in a way that we can't necessarily relate to anybody else because we're not getting their backstory we don't know why they got into the work that they do we don't know what they've gone through in their lives, you know, their successes and their failures leading up to where they're at right now. Um, we only get hers, but it helps us to look at her and go, I could see myself being like her. And if I was this driven, it's, it's almost like an idealistic viewpoint, to be honest, because that's what we want to believe all scientists are like, Patrick. Don, like we want to think that every single person out there that's dedicated to science is just there for the greater good. Like they're all philanthropists, essentially. They don't like they're not there to make a paycheck. They're just there to find out amazing things for the rest of the world and discover. Like, that's the way it's played up. And Ellie actually shows us that. And we see examples of other scientists who aren't quite like that. You know, even Hertz character, who I like to think of as Elon Musk. I really, truly believe that if Elon Musk got cancer and thought that he could slow the cancer down by sending himself into space, he would do that. He's the kind of billionaire that would literally do that and has probably he's got that same drive as a scientist and a science minded person. But he's 
also made some choices that are financial in his life that are maybe suspect, kind of like Hurt's character, who's trying to make up for some of his past decisions. So I really think he's a lot like an Elon Musk today. And Ellie's just that idealistic view that is a perfect contrast that we want to get behind as a heroine. Well, I I think that when you look at her, what Zemeckis does with her, not just in contrast with the other scientist representations, but almost as part of this cornucopia of giving us the types of scientists that exist. There are the philanthropists. There are the money grabbers. There are the altruistic, the idealists. And I think Zemeckis is showing us that science isn't as pure as we'd like to believe it is, that there's a realism that comes from that. I don't think he's being pessimistic about it. I think he allows us to see a range of how science can be used to manipulate, to create opportunities for selfish gain or selfless gain. And when he hones in on Ellie, what we see is, I think, something that I want to believe in, which is someone who takes the world of science and recognizes her emotional attachment to it because of her relationship with her dad and what motivates her, but how she looks at the world from not a B to A solution, but an A to B. I was listening to or watching a documentary, and one of the scientists was talking about those that want to prove their rightness or prove their perspective typically go from a B to an A. They say, I believe this, and therefore I'm going to find evidence that's going to support that. If evidence does not support it, I'll keep finding something until something does. Right. P- pure science is the opposite of that. It's going from A to B. It's, I believe this about the world, and therefore I'm going to run experiments. I'm going to have it scrutinized by my peers for them to poke holes in it so that I can discover not that I'm wrong, but that I need to either learn more or that maybe I am incorrect or something else exists. Where I think Ellie fits the mold is that she goes from A to B. She's willing to accept that a possibility exists, but she needs empirical evidence. And what I, much like what Aaron said, I find it refreshing that she represents skepticism, which is different than, um, I don't know what the, the, there's another word there I can't think of, but something stronger than skepticism. Like, yeah, well, as opposed to, as opposed to putting, you know, she, she'll believe something until there's, she's until it's proven to her that it's not true. Right. As opposed to constantly saying, it's true, and I don't care what evidence you throw at me. Log- uh, is logic the wrong word to put there? Or is that well? I, I think logic is rog- I think logic is supporting of skepticism. There's that yeah, fun. I agree. And when you get to something beyond skepticism, where you're not willing to hear another side of it, that gets you into conspiracy theories. And of course, we're living in this world right now oh, where boy. you have yeah. an election, a U.S. election that is considered the most secure, and yet there's still this rhetoric being talked through that says, nope, it's been rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged. And you say that enough, and people are willing to take that spitball answer as opposed to the nuance and the complexity of that. And because it's easier to digest, Mm -hmm. it must be right. 
And where I think Ellie stands out to me as a character is in her relationship with Palmer. There's a great conversation where she's asking him, how do you know you weren't deluding yourself? Uh, I'd need proof. And, you know, from a faith-based standpoint, any Christian yeah. could put their their all their chips in and say, yeah, that's exactly right. And in 97, I felt this way when he said, you know, did you love your father? Prove it. Looking at it, so many years later, I still love the question because I think what he's doing is not denouncing science. And I don't think he sees her as denouncing religion. I think what he's doing is he's saying the world, the universe, all these things are more complex than one conversation. Yes, sir. And, and I think that those two characters create this fantastic dialogue which all three of us have alluded to about science and religion and i'll open it up with just one a simple question that i know is not a simple answer mm -hmm. is that does the film show a conflict between both science and religion oh gosh wholeheartedly yes in my opinion um i well I say that because I feel it in myself always, then and now, in 97, 2020, just I, I constantly, as a man of science and a teacher who, who, who drinks, ah, I don't want to say drinks the science Kool-Aid, but I'm there where I flirt with agnostic and atheist aims all the time. I doubt. Um, I am that guy who needs a hell of a lot of proof for a whole lot of things, not just what to have for dinner tonight, honey, but just, or how you're feeling or yeah, like, you know, just like, oh, I'm okay. Uh, prove it. You know, like I'm that, I am, I admit I'm that guy. So when I, when I watched that movie in 97, as a, as a you know, busted up Catholic kid, you know, watching his parents get divorced that very same year and going to a liberal college to get away from a small town and get away from stuff that I don't like. And to question the world and all that. And, you know, because that's what, you know, teens that are pricks and don't know that they're, you know, haven't gotten wise to the world quite all that way yet do is is question things. And I I couldn't stop questioning things then. I haven't stopped questioning things now. I wholeheartedly think there's a conflict in this movie. At the same time, um, I love that I that that conversation that kind of cues it to me is when you look at the implications that are suggested sometimes by Ellie in those conversations with Palmer, what is that, what if science is right and religion is wrong? You know, when you picture posing that question to a coffee table crowd, a church crowd, a science crowd, picture how that would go and you'll see enormous conflict because you see the hardest of people who are like, no, absolutely not. God is in this world. God is everywhere we walk. God is in this, God is in that. And then you'll see people as sober and as convinced as can be in the other direction. So, oh my goodness, yes, you know, and I, I look at those implications and it's, it, it rattles me, it shatters me and I, and I, and I'm okay with that conflict, but at the same time, it's, you know, it might be existential crisis in my head, but I love the way it comes out with heart in this movie that, okay, fine. If there's conflict, we're going to have at it and do that. But to see the two characters that embody it in this film, find ways to not necessarily agree but just understand each other's vantage points is pretty amazing. Yeah. And, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, I just think that it's very important if we're going to tell a realistic story 
that we address both of these things because this has been the ongoing battle since the beginning of science, <laughs> I would say. Uh, you know, people will always question whether or not faith is a viable reason to believe things or do we need proof on the science side? And so it's important to have this conversation. I don't think that this film is nearly as interesting. The story, I should say, of whether or not to go and meet an alien intelligence that you discover is nearly as interesting without this debate because it would actually be had. And I, I think that maybe more than in the past right now, the way the country is currently kind of fractured in pieces, I think this would be a huge deal and would definitely go the route of people freaking out. And, you know, the fanaticism we see on the religious side was a little bit scary with Jake Busey's character. And that's one of the elements that I don't love about the film. Not that it's that not, I don't mind that it's there. I think he plays a character that is in a different movie <laughs> in a lot of ways. He's just so stereotyped <laughs> in that role. And also, wow, does he look like his dad, guys? Holy moly. Oh, gotcha. Holy um, moly is right. But <laughs> that was a holy moly. He's a religious fanatic. Anyway, uh, but like that was something that I kind of was cringy to me because I was like thinking, wow, I could very much see someone sabotaging this for religious belief system purposes. And likewise, I could see it happening the other way around as well. And it's just we live in that kind of a world. So I think... Exploring it was great, and I personally enjoy the two characters being on different spectrum here and falling for each other and then having to reckon with coming from a different angle and one believing in God and one not. Uh, and I, We don't get preachy on our show, but we are both Christians, and Don, you come from a, a faith background. You know, the Bible talks about don't be unequally yoked is the language, I think, in the King James Version. And basically, the Bible is telling you, you shouldn't be in a relationship with someone who has a different faith than you are. That's oh, essentially what it boils down yeah. to. I, I, and, I, I get that challenge a lot because my wife is a holy roller. You know, the term used to her picking me up was missionary dating, like, let's go rescue this guy. And I'm 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 still a work in progress, and and we are we are not the same in 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 lots of levels, and at the same time, I can just look at her and she looks at me, and we love each other for it. Like I am a work in progress, and I do question everything, and I need a lot of science and a lot of proof in my life. But then I go to her and, and I watch her, her faith and how easy it comes out of her, and how beautiful it comes out of her, and it's yeah, it's. We are different, yet it is desirable. I think she. I think there's ways I. I help her question and ground her, and there's ways she softens me up. And I. I feel it every 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 step I take. It's amazing. Yeah, and I think that the film does a great job of capturing that relationship. Where, I think the movie shows that it is kind of important, and there are going to be issues that come up in a relationship that you simply can't be in agreement on unless you have the same baseline of what truth is and are coming to things from the same perspective and yet it also shows a relationship where i think it's much like what you're talking about with you and your wife palmer is never trying to make ellie into 
a believer. He, he never is trying to force her to be a believer, nor right. force her to be a believer to be with him. He's open and honest about his feelings. He's open and honest about his faith. And he's very real with her to the point where he tells her he couldn't vote for her to go because he doesn't agree with her. So he's honest with himself. He's honest with her. And they're able to work through a relationship, but it shows that it can be a real challenge and that there's a reason why the Bible mentions that is because it can cause a serious conflict. And so I like that this movie has that element in it and doesn't just go the route of having a romantic couple for the sake of being romantic. Their romance is intricately tied to the questions that are there in the plot, the deeper philosophical and religious questions at play well i think of i'll hop in i know i'm stealing patch's spot here but i think of that dinner party conversation when she puts on the dress and has that little you know white house ball and they have that it, it comes before their river conversation which goes even deeper it's she asks, like what if science revealed that he never existed in the first place he isn't god and you know and palmer's lickety split answer is I wouldn't want to live in a world where he doesn't exist. And and in those lines and in those exchanges, they're they're cordial. They're they're understanding to where each other are coming from without, like you said, forcing any kind of beliefs. I mean, Palmer kind of represents kind of that hot, young, approachable man that openly talks about God that we kind of don't have today and kind of didn't have then in '97. I mean, today the closest person you get that is you know, young and cool and open about God is probably Chris Pratt. And he's just an actor that thanks him at award shows, you know? So yet that seems so, oh my gosh, look at Chris Pratt. So proud to be a Christian and we wish more people would. And yeah, it's just the conflict is there. P Patch, where are you coming from with the conflict and the vantage points? Well, I agree with both of you guys. And, and I think that what Zemeckis does that I appreciate watching this as recently as I did is that I think He's going beyond the romantic relationship. Clearly, Palmer and Ellie adore each other. And yes, they've had sex. So obviously, they're intimately connected. But I didn't think, watching it this time around, I never saw them as a couple that was pursuing one another. And I didn't ever see their, I rarely ever saw their coupleness being a central focus. There were obviously a couple of scenes that, um, affirm that so i'm not denying that they didn't have a relationship they absolutely did but that cordialness don that you're talking about what i think that reveals is that when it comes to science and religion it's not that they're necessarily in conflict with each other in in what they're pursuing palmer says something amazing at the end he's asked straight up do you think she went and he says as a man of faith, I'm bound by a different covenant, which is indicating a different form of faith. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute, ask that question. But he says, I for one believe her because I believe that our goal is one and the same, the pursuit of truth. He doesn't, by saying he believes her, to me, that's a, that's a, that's a religious answer. That's a faith-based answer because the core value of, of, of religion should be, and I'm speaking strictly from the Christian faith, not necessarily from Catholicism or Muslim or whatever, but the core value of Christian faith is to value people above anything else, not to convert, not to allow for the possibility that two people can be in conflict 
And if my faith says, I believe this and I believe it's the truth, nothing's going to shake that, which Palmer articulates so well at that dinner party scene. I couldn't imagine living in a world where God didn't exist. He doesn't go in to say, because can you see the trees? Can you feel the air? He doesn't do any of that. And Ellie doesn't press him. She doesn't, she says, I need proof. She doesn't say, prove it to me. And that's where I think their relationship is what I think is a healthy relationship of people from different worldviews. And from a science standpoint and from a faith or a religious based standpoint, you have to understand and you have to be able to be in a place where it's okay to be firm in your convictions. Ellie is obviously the absolute representation of being firm in her convictions that there is life out there beyond earth. And 50% of the world, 75% of the world may think that she's nuts, but she is firm in that conviction. And she's pursuing things in a way that only she can know how. She's not going through it with prayer. She's not going through it seeking out philosophers or psychologists to say, do you think this might be true? No, she's using the scientific way. She's doing the scientific method. I believe this. I'm going to have my work scrutinized. And I'm going to take my lumps, and if I find out that something else is there, I'm going to continue to pursue that. The pursuit of truth is one and the same with both of them. They're just coming at it from different places. I, I can't deny the fact that subjectively, I don't necessarily agree with her perspective, but I absolutely respect where she's coming from. And I think that what Zemeckis wants from his audience or at least what I interpret is that he wants us to understand that science is not the reaction to religion or it shouldn't be that science and religion can coexist and maybe even be cooperative because the goal of religion is not to prove God's existence. It's a, it's a conflict obviously, because if you're in a place of faith, God is the central entity of your world. And if a person of science or wherever says I have not seen that. I don't believe that exists. I don't believe God exists anywhere. Well, that's a longer conversation. That's a that's a that's that's more lunches and more coffee. Because the end goal of a religious person is not to prove God's existence. It's to present a message that they believe comes from a God that they believe exists. Yes, it absolutely means getting through that, but I think from a religious point of view, we as believers or Christians, they miss the point. And Zemeckis doesn't – he shows that in a more extreme way with the cult following. And while I would agree with Aaron that <laughs> this guy probably should have been in a different movie, I think on an extreme level he represents a narrow-minded vantage point of one end. I don't know what the extreme is for, for science. I don't – I may not have picked it up if it existed in contact, but – it could be that it's somebody like a, I don't say Bill Nye, but somebody who is adamant going beyond skepticism and more into cynicism that God doesn't exist. Well, I'll, Richard Dawkins. So Richard Dawkins would probably be the other equivalent, not as an extremist, but someone who is notoriously just firm and saying God doesn't exist. And if you even try to talk about God with me, I'm going to shut you down perfectly fine vantage point to have but i think he represents just like the extremists on the other end of the religious side represent 
those types of people that can't cooperate, that can't get together. And I love that contact shows us not just getting along, but because two people care deeply about one another, they're not putting their beliefs aside. They're not putting their perspectives aside. They're saying, look, I value you beyond our differences. And I'm, I'm willing to work through these challenges because I care about you. And I think Palmer says that in his own way. And I think she says that in her own way. Yeah. And, and, and it's a great relationship. It's one that I think, Aaron, as you mentioned, it's representative of the goodness of both sides and also representative of the conflict that something as important as answering the question, why do we exist, gets answered you know, from, from these different points and how it affects the relationship. Uh, so it's, it's good, it's, and it's, it's a tough thing to wrestle with, but it's a, it's a good thing it to is. wrestle with. I yeah, want to – go ahead. Well, I just want to make sure – I want to say that like – on the, I think you may be rolling into this anyway, but like the, the whole, this is whether faith and science can coexist is part of this question. And I think it's important that that gets addressed because we live in a world even today. And I think we've had sections of humanity that have always struggled with this that feel that there is only one way, Patrick, like you were saying, this movie does a very good job of trying to say, these things both matter and neither is one we can toss out completely and throw away. And it's interesting to me because one of my things that I actually dislike about the film and probably the major thing that sinks it for me, as far as being from a masterpiece down a notch is there's one scene at the end of this movie and, and Sagan, the atheist, he just can't help himself. Right. He does such a great job, I think, of giving equal weight to both of these arguments. And then he puts in this one scene where the, I think it's Viola Davis's character gets this intel at the end that says, oh, well, now we learned there was 18 hours of silence. And where did that come from? Up until that point, guys, they had to take Ellie's word as faith. Ellie and everything she had said was based on nothing other than a belief because there was no proof, which is exactly the whole point of the faith-based argument. And so by throwing that in there, it undermines Ellie's belief that it's can be, it can't be explained. Right. Yeah. And so that bothers me, but, but I think that the film does get at the heart of, this coexistence that there are scientific things that you are going to get to the point where you're either going to have to choose to believe or not believe. And that though Ellie gets there from an entirely different route is what is so interesting about this movie, because most people who get to a religious point of faith are coming through a path of learning about Jesus or Christ or Allah or whatever the case may be, but they're coming up in a religious system and they're going to learn about how to have faith. Ellie is coming at it from an experiential point of view within the science community. Like it takes actually having something that she literally cannot explain for her to go, well, I guess that kind of got proven. Then I guess that's what that means. And she has that great moment where she says that. And she's like, well, I guess if that's the case, then that's the case. Because I just, I can't explain it. 
but yeah. I know it's true. And so I think that it shows that they can exist. And I think that it's important. I have this argument all the time when people bring up creationism versus evolution and, and the dinosaurs and things like that. There's macroevolution and there's microevolution. Is there anything in the Bible that says that one year is 365 American-defined Earth days? No, there's not. We don't know what that means. So could that be millions of years? If science tells us the Earth is millions of years by our counting old, can that still coexist with what the Bible tells us? Absolutely. A million years could be a year in whatever the Bible's terminology of that time frame is. There's all kinds of ways in which it can coexist. It doesn't mean we have to discount science. There's evolution that can be proven, while there's other evolution that ne doesn't necessarily have the ability to be proven. And so I think that we just have to stop trying to see things as black or white. And the movie does a good job of ushering us to that conversation instead of picking us up. I agree with that. I think, um, like, I know the question we kind of started with was like articulating faith and she's got it. It's just faith. Like you said, from a different place, you know, she has faith in her work. You know, she has faith in the things that she's discovered and been able to prove. She has faith in the odds being in her favor about the mission of her work that, you know, I know she says it to a school kid at the end of the movie, but if only one of these things out of a million of these things had this, and if only one of a million of those things had that, the odds say we're so not alone, you know, and, and that there's faith in that, that she's got. And then also, in terms of the committed sense, in terms of the, the peril and the adventure that follows, faith in the plans that were sent to her. You know, she she goes straight, she goes straight to the the government's sitting there worried, you know, you got armed guys with M16s, what are they gonna do? Point it at a radio, you know? And she's there going, There these are plans. This is a transport. We gotta go. Let's do it. Why would they why would they even put us in trouble? You know, they, they have to be far more advanced than us. Let's do this. Like she has faith in just that which is the mystery of mysteries in terms of that big mission. And the hard part with the coexistence, and I know this is going to sound cliche, but it's always the small fraction, the few that ruin it for everybody else. Like that tailgating sequence always shows it, you know, the, the crazy always comes out, you know, um, you have a collision and a microcosm of really gullible people, whether it's the, the Chevy Vega, owners and then you have the jake Buseys, and then you have the the elvis guys you know like there's always going to be those crazy gullible people and they ruin it for the people who are really trying with faith and really trying with science but at the same time it is all about people and it, i think you know i i disagree with aaron where i don't mind the 19 minutes because i think i don't think you do all that and not have a bit of that at least for a science fiction movie payoff and if I remember correctly, the book has more than just the 19 hours of footage that kind of come out or at least are known, but obviously don't super duper get public. And I'm OK with that. But, yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, two viewpoints can coexist. And it's it's fascinating to watch it try. I would look at this and I didn't have an issue with the, that that moment, Aaron, because I don't think it negated Ellie's faith. I don't think it negated what she experienced. You know, what we we can make the assumption that she's working out at the VLA and she's got a grant. So I guess we can assume that she was being she was debriefed that, oh yeah, it captured 18 hours worth of footage and that's why we're giving it to you. At the same time, 
I look at her and the faith that she has as representative of, of a larger thing where everybody believes something. And it's not even about a cosmic intelligence or about um, a greater something. There are folks that I'm sitting in a chair and I have faith that it's not going to break because of the mechanics of it. Now, the moment that that thing breaks as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm going to probably lose faith in that chair because what I believe is that it's supposed to hold me up and now it's not. But in a broader spectrum, all of us have a belief in something, whether it's a divine intelligence that created this world in six days or whether it's a agnostic vantage point where there's something out there that's putting this whole thing together or whether the earth is flat or whether JFK's assassination was done by one man. There is a belief in something. We put our beliefs on something and they're informed either by our own upbringing, like Ellie, who sees wanting to see what's out there and wanting to question if there's anything beyond her house or her neighborhood or her state or her world. And we, we see her represent the fact that faith is simply, not simply, faith is something that allows us to be driven forward. And it's a conviction that she has. It's, a, it's what I think keeps her on the track that she is when she goes, not ballistic, but when she goes off on those VC guys that hadn't eventually gives her the money. I mean, I don't think she would have stopped going to other places. She just happened to get the, the funding from Hatton because of that spunk. And I love that look that she gives the camera. Thank you. Thank you. Like she knows that it was him. And I think the beauty of contact is that Zemeckis takes away the conflict of whether or not someone believes or doesn't believe in God and elevates the fact that there's a significance of wondering what our place in the universe is as people. And so Ellie and Palmer represent two factions that are trying to get to that central place, get to that singular answer that's complex, it's nuanced, it's not just, are we alone? I, no, because I'm sitting here having a conversation with two other people, so I'm not alone. I have a son you know, six feet away from me, and I have a wife that's like 20 feet away from me, so I'm not alone. And I know it, the, the question is, well, that's not what I meant. I mean, are we alone in the universe? Oh, that's a more complex question. And it needs data. It needs math. It needs all these things, but it also needs faith. Because I think any kind of experiment, any kind of belief that you have, whether you try to dissect it through an experiment and try to disprove it, starts with the place of faith. If I believe that the world is flat, I need to be responsible enough to talk to people that are smarter than me and get data. And if it's as simple as going up in one of Elon Musk's hot air balloons, you know, tethered to a Ferrari or something and seeing the curvature of the earth, then that's fine for me. That's irresponsible to think that faith is only a religious thing. I think it's absolutely a human thing. And the approach that we take from that faith, I think, is where we start to diverge. But it doesn't mean we have to diverge from our caring of each other. And that's why I like the relationship between Ellie and Palmer is that 
it's not just that they respect each other, but they value each other. They value the perspectives that they're coming from. Maybe in contact too, we look at Palmer's relationship and now and how, you know, he's got the spiritual pulse of the nation in his new book or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I, I just, I think it's fantastic. And, um, it's a conversation that doesn't stop in 97. That's what I think is the real beauty of this. And Don, you mentioned your, uh, not so great love of, uh, 2001, a space odyssey. And we've touched on what I think, I guess is contact part two, which is interstellar. I guess we can agree that that's probably the unofficial contact part two <laughs> with, uh, Matthew McConaughey. How does this film for you guys stack up with those that came before it and after it? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of 2001. You don't have to necessarily compare it to that or interstellar, but those two definitely come to mind because of the things that we've talked about tonight. But I wanted to, to know, is there anything you know, Don, we can start with you. Um, where do these, how do you yeah. see contact in relationship to the films that came before it and after it? I think it's a, a cornerstone of thinking man science fiction, which is so rare because yet, I mean, we talked about men in black and things like that before where there's, there's, there's room for both. There's room for some fluff and some fun. And then there's room for thinking man science fiction because it's those old, you know, it's the Jules Verne's, it's the H.G. Wells, it's the creative ideas that come to fruition that make us want to go do things. You know, we, the astronauts of today grew up watching Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation. And, and like we, you know, they didn't name the, the ship the Enterprise for nothing. So we, if, if, if it's the fiction that can inspire us to go out and find that truth, go out and prove that science, I think the legacy that a film like Contact can do and 2001 can do and Interstellar can do is all awesome. And what I still love about it is it's a heart pounding experience. My goodness, when she goes on that ride and the effects kick in and the, the silence and the movement and all the different wonderment of where, where that is. Oh my goodness. I, there's not many edge of my seat roller coaster moments in a contemplative film that are better than that. And I'll put interstellar to that any day of the week. I'll, and I prefer contact to interstellar, but, um, I, it makes me want to watch, rewatch, rewatch Solaris, old and new. Um, I know it was the same year also as Gattaca, which is great thinking man science fiction deserves its own episode someday. And um, I think Interstellar owns a lot, you know, owes this movie a lot. I mean, the heart of Interstellar, I, I will fully admit, is higher. You know, it, there there's some emotional levels it goes to, but as you know, it, it, in a way, and I not not a knock to either movie it's still kind of equally trite that it all comes down to a daddy issue moment at the end. You know, as much as Matthew McConaughey is floating through a damn bookshelf, we still have a Jodie Foster on a beach with her dad. To some people that is a leap of, you know, of movie swallowing salt that they just don't get through. Like, Oh my God, I went this whole way on this journey with Jodie Foster just to talk to David Morris on a beach. Or I did this whole Matthew McConaughey thing just to nudge some dust and some watches. Come on. You know, like, is that all you can do? But then I don't mind that because it's all about people. And, you know, you can take a very wonderful, huge thing and just bring it down to the human part, which is which impresses me to know when um, I found this thing. You know, and that heart I have since found in a couple of in very rare places. I know Aaron just gave his review today, but I put the midnight sky in it, which is coming out here in Christmas with Cooney. In, in this ballpark of movies that fit thinking man's fiction or thinking man science fiction and with a with a good heart going on to it, um, a small movie that I think I recommend the absolute most to as a sister companion piece to something like Contact is go look up 
2018 a movie called Clara about a um uh another kind of SETI scientist who kind of does the the solar shadow passage thing a different kind of study and it's also another man of faith who kind of falls for kind of a, a bourgeoisie kind of artsy girl and you know he hires her as an intern just to help with her work but then they end up falling for each other and complete opposite viewpoints of people and far more romantic than contact far romantic than interstellar but just as heady just as amazing and just as much wonderment. And it's actually shot by a real life married couple who are both actor and actress. And uh, Clara is the place I would send a quick little recommend out there with. But I think it stacks up. I, I, I put it over Interstellar. I know that gets me on the crap list in this room and in this discussion group, but contact's up there for me. Well, that's why you're here. Is So it's okay. <laughs> you're forgiven. <laughs> yeah, Clara is pretty good. I agree. And I enjoyed it as well. It has, like you said, some of the similar spirituality slash science exploration that Contact does, only from the perspective of a couple and a romance. And for me, that was a big, you know, plus, not not better than Contact by any stretch of the imagination, I don't think. And and it's an indie. It's a very small, quiet, simple film. But I agree. And Cosine, folks, check that one out. I definitely prefer Interstellar still. And when it comes to 2001, here's the thing. I, I think that 2001 and I think that Interstellar are tonally more consistent films throughout with what they are going for in their approach. I think Contact wavers a bit and the religious fanaticism we mentioned to Jake Busey for me, those moments while small are out of place in the movie. And it's still got a little bit of just a, it's not a, as serious of a picture at times. There are scenes in it that feel like they could be in Jurassic park uh, as well. And so I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying that they're different. I actually don't like the idea of having to compare them all, honestly, which is weird because I'm typically a ranking guy, but I think that they all three have such strong value. And these are really, we're, guys, we're talking, I honestly think we're talking about like the three pillars of this genre, of this idea right here. I don't love the end of 2001. I'm not going to lie. I think it's an incredible picture. And I think it's a little bit nuts. One thing I love about Contact more than anything else is that when she meets the aliens, the way that they depict themselves to her, the way that it's explained, the way that they show up as her father and talk about that and talk about there being other civilizations out there, give me that 12 times out of a 12, you know, compared to the end of 2001. And also... As much as I prefer Interstellar as a film overall, and it's for the reason, Don, like you said, because I emotionally connect to it, this is a better story, easier to digest story reason for what is happening than the bookshelf in time and space that he is peering through, right? It's a much more metaphysical, kind of metaphorical type of thing that's being explored there. Contact's pretty straightforward, really, when you look at it, and I think that it appeals to an audience that that those two films are never meant to reach directly, specifically 2001. And so I love that because they all three touch on these big ideas 
in a little bit different ways. And they all three ping on different parts of our psyche and our hearts and our minds and all these things. And so I love them. I think they're as a group, they're just phenomenal. I think they're the three that I would recommend anybody and everybody needs to seek out. And then you can go from there and, and look at things like Clara and the Midnight Sky. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of more that do it a little bit less great, but that like to explore the same concept. So yeah, I, I, I got them kind of all right there on that same wavelength. Good. Cause that's where they should be. <laughs> and, and I asked the question really to kind of create a little bit of conflict just to see what you guys were thinking. I, I, I agree with both. I think if I were to look at all three of these, I can't rank them because I think they're all different in their own right. And they're all trying to accomplish different things. I think they're all asking a question indirectly or directly, are we alone? And that's a, that's a Socratic question. And it's one that I don't think would be inappropriate to ask in any kind of sci-fi movie. What I think I see is that if, if I could just kind of translate my experience individually, 2001 was that movie that you went, what the crap just happened? And so when you look at 2001, you go, okay, um, 15 minutes into the movie, there's no talking. And wait a minute, did my TV just shut off? Oh, yeah, because the screen hasn't come on yet. It, it's gone black or whatever. And then... On the other end of that, you have Interstellar, which is this extremely scientific movie. Lots of scientific basis for all these things. And in the middle of that, you have contact. And here's what I like to think. 2001, if everything was centered around my experience, if the whole movie industry was like, what does Patch think? It would be this. Wow, 2001, that's way out there. That's a lot of stuff that <laughs> has like a semester's worth of a class to talk about this one movie. Um, you know what? Let's scale this back, okay? And then you give this contact, which is this tonally lighter. It's kind of like a little appetizer, a little high school science. That I was like, okay, yeah, I feel comfortable thinking through some of these challenges. Oh, yeah, this is, you know, religion, science, yeah. This is conflict, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm okay kind of working through this. I feel a little bit smarter because I'm getting some of this stuff. Don't quite get the science, but... That's okay. Jody's she's talking to me. Yeah. Sounds cool. Vega. All right, picking it up. And then you go to college and grad school and Interstellar hits. And you're like, oh, okay. If I didn't have contact, Interstellar would have made me like tear my hair out because I'm like, what did I just watch here? In fact, my wife, the first time we watched Interstellar, I'm over here tearing up by the end and she's credits roll and she's like, Well, that was pretty long, you know? <laughs> and so you're getting these entirely different perspectives. And I think that's what these three movies do for me is contact gives me permission to think more critically and to think more deeply about the things that it asks. And the reason I appreciate Interstellar so much is that it touches on in a more graduate school type way for me, the things that contact is doing and it doubles down on the science <laughs> and on Matt Damon, you know, being stranded on a planet, you know, which is a great theme to have in your movies. But I think overall, I can't say one is better than the other. And I, I don't want to. And even 2001, 
I think I said this on the show. It was a five star movie for me until the last 15 minutes. And then I was like, ah, wait, you just lost me. Okay. So I think when it comes to chronology, Contact was definitely influenced by 2001. And I think that Interstellar was definitely influenced by Contact. But because they offer different things and different movie experiences, I think they all deserve to be looked at as that heady sci fi type of genre that I want more of, guys. I don't know where the world's going to be this time next year when it comes to movie theaters. I was talking to somebody this morning about that, and I said, if there's one thing good that could come out of movie theaters closing, which I don't want to happen, it's that we have more opportunities to see independent films on streaming services (laughs) because I I think we need more of those. Yes, Interstellar was a blockbuster. Contact wasn't a blockbuster, but it was a widely distributed uh, movie. 2001 was a big one. But there are other movies out there that have a great framework like these three, but they just don't have an audience because they are not distributed widely. And so if the streaming services give us opportunities for that, man, bring it on. Bring it on. Don, were you going to say something? Well, I mean, that's kind of why I say Clara. Like, I think Aaron is one of the very few people I've ever met that saw Clara. So, yeah, there are little things out there that would that could do well. I keep thinking of, like, the uh what is it the sci-fi ones you got the endless you know the stuff that you guys have touted and and found in the buried treasure that's out there or even you know i know it's more twilight zone but like the vast of night this past summer like just Mm -hmm. a fun pulpy good thing where okay it's not heady science fiction like this but just wow look what little people can do with great ideas and and how that can all come together good stuff don all right well it is connecting point time the moment in the film line character whatever that made you resonate with the film uh, the most emotionally. And Don, why don't you get us started? Oh, man, I, I love the connecting point. It's always a great point here because it, it just what warms you over the most. So it's that awful waste of space quote that comes up, you know, beginning and end where, you know, she she hears it from her father and then she gives it to those kids at the end. And, I, and I'm that person in, in both of those aims and arms and, 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 and roles. Like I've become that dad who shows my children the planets that are very easily seen at night. We're stoked that Jupiter and Saturn are coming together in a week to become this little super planet thing, you know, in terms of their, their glow in the sky. And we've got a telescope now to like go see it even more. And my kids always ask me like, daddy, what's that planet up there? What's that star up there? I've got my kids thinking about stuff like that. And when they ask me, you know, the, the more the sciencey part about it, because I got a second grader who's starting to get real smart about that sort of thing. I have no problem being the science guy in the relationship. And and when she when she, she hasn't gotten to the quite the contact kid at the end of the movie question, but if she were to get there and ask me, you know, it, do you think there's aliens? Because she's going to want, you know, end up watching some show of some things somewhere that's going to make her think of that sort of thing. I, I'm going to be David Morris and I'm going to be Ellie Air and you know Jodie Foster. I'm going to use the awful waste of space line. And I do it in school, too, as a teacher. I love that opening credit sequence of, you know, move that super backward zoom, how far our human radiation and radio signals have gotten. And then you're going to get to a point where even our you know, existence is a mystery because of how far and how vast all of this is. I've actually used that clip in class a thousands time to explain the size of the universe. I think of the uh, the marble game at the end of me, me, you know Men in Black doing the same thing only in a more cartoonish fashion, but you know the more serious and scientific fashion with contact of. And then you get to a you know a Dr. Seuss level with little kids where we're a speck on a speck on a speck, and and I do all of that, becoming that school teacher who 
has no problem being an evolutionary guy. But at the same time, I work at a, at a parochial school where faith is involved. And I don't mind that at all. I don't mind marrying those two together, but also putting a backbone to science there because it's there and it's interesting. So to be that dad and to be that teacher who thinks of those things, I, I look at the sky and I look at news from NASA differently since 1997 than to this day. Like I, I feed off that. Like the next, there's always like, what is it? A monthly thing where the Hubble has new images and the telescope. I can't wait to see those. Like I, I'm a dork for that. And I like it. It all goes back to that sense of wonder, but it also goes back to that headspace and that existential, I don't want to say drama, but that existential thought of, uh, you know, are we really alone? And I, I'm right there with Ellie. I don't think we are. I think it's a matter of time. I'm also David Drummond. We're like, it's so far away. We'll never contact it or it's, or, or it's too obscure to, for us to ever understand. And I'm okay with that, but I think it's there. So to do all of that, and to wrestle with the faith that goes with it, because I'm always wrestling with it, my belief in God or, or lack thereof, or just what, where my head's at with that. I think of all that, and I go to that awful waste of space line at the end, and also that's echoed from the beginning, and I'm like, yep, that's it. You know, to say it, to take all the fancy ways you could say it of, well, I don't know, this and that, and you just say it like that, it's beautiful perfection. Aaron, what about you? Well, I think we have the same one. And that is Palmer and Ellie's conversations outside of the party. They leave and they walk out to the water and it's, you know, she's talking about his book on spirituality and concludes that he is saying that science killed God. And then she brings in this conversation about Occam's razor, which is essentially the idea that the simplest solution is almost always going to be the right one. And she says, so what's more likely an all powerful, mysterious God created the universe and then decided not to give any proof of his existence or that he doesn't exist at all. And that we created him. So we wouldn't have to feel so small and alone. And Palmer replies, I don't know. I couldn't imagine living in a world where God didn't exist. I wouldn't want to. And Patrick, I have said this on the show before, and I've said it way more off the show to you. This line in and of itself, and this, this entire conversation is a big connecting point for me. I want to leave some parts to you, but like this line for me is, I like have to pause for a second because it is a feeling and a thought that I have on a regular basis when I think about the world. And I, see people die way before they ever should or i see horrible tragedies in the world on a massive scale and i think to myself how could i possibly get through my life if i believed that this is all there is if if it really is just me here until i'm gone and then poof what the hell is the point of being here what am i getting out of this who am i why does it matter to me and Palmer's simple statement, I couldn't imagine living in a world where God doesn't exist. I wouldn't want to. That's, I think, a feeling that most people of faith have. And I think it's a feeling that can generate a person to, or can encourage a person and, and push a person to wanting to explore faith further, is having that feeling that sinking feeling that what does it mean why are we here why what is going to be after this 
And why would that be? And so for me, like Palmer, you know, it's a very calming thing for me to have a belief in something that makes me not tied to the time on this earth as the end all and be all. And I just love how succinctly he puts that. And his comeback to her is just brilliant because, you know, she asks him, how do you know you're not deluding yourself? I mean, for me, I'd need proof, which is, I mean, a lot of us want proof, right? We're always going to prefer proof. Heck, I went off on Don today in Facebook group. I was like, don't give me your thoughts and feelings. Give me proof. And you know what he did? He went on a Google spree and linked me to about 15 articles of proof. <laughs> so we all want proof and when it, when it exists. But Palmer finishes that discussion and he, you know, brings up her love of her father and asks her how, how she can prove that. And of course she can't, which is a great starting exercise that I think lays the foundation and the groundwork for her to then get to the point she gets to at the end of the film where she can then go further in the belief in something that she can't prove. So it's this moment. It's this whole scene. I think it's the absolute like glue that keeps the picture together. It's in the middle. It bridges the beginning of where the characters are at the start and where they are going to end up at the end. And it's perfect. And it also just resonates with me so personally because of that line. I'm glad it does. And it was not my connecting point. <laughs> I think we had an issue with the notes. The It's a great one. And I think everything that you said absolutely solidifies the relationship. I think he challenges her in that moment, again, not to one-up her. <laughs> He's not trying to make her feel bad about being a scientist. He's really trying to let her know there is more nuance. There's more complexity to what you're talking about here that science really is more than just about data. I mean, there's, there's lots more that goes into it. For me, they're taking a walk on the waterfront, and he's challenging her. He said, look, <laughs> he says something that, I, again, I think Zemeckis is, is, is trying to be kind of pointed here. He says, you're willing to go out here and do this. You're, you're willing to die for this. And it's a very Christ-like moment. I, I remember in 97, watching, I was like, oh my gosh, he's like, he's proven to her that, oh my gosh, her faith, she's dying for her faith. That's what Jesus did. And I love the way that they interact in this scene because what you see is Palmer's genuinely afraid. He's genuinely going Oh my gosh. And this is before the hearing, by the way. This is the scene right before the hearing where he basically keeps her from going on uh on the ship. Asking her that challenging but true question that he was you know needed to ask. And he says, Why is this so important to you? And I'm gonna paraphrase. She says, For my, my entire life I've always wondered what's out there. Who are we? What what are we doing here? And she says, if I could find out just a little piece of that, it'd be worth it. And he says, you're a brave woman, Ellie. And I love this. If it stopped there, that would have been somewhat cliche. But they embrace and she goes, Palmer, I'm so confused. And he goes, me too. Now we know why he's confused. He's conflicted. He's like, great, I don't want to lose her. And yet I've got to do my due diligence 
not only as a member of this committee, but as a man of faith, I've got to ask that question. I started asking myself a question. What is she confused about? Is she confused about going? I guess she's confused because she cares about him. And she doesn't want to leave. And if that's the case, where I latched on was the fact that this is a vulnerable moment for her where she has not loved anybody deeply since her dad. And the interesting thing about this is that there was always something intuitive with her, but it was fueled by her relationship with her dad. And I think she went into a deep dive in science after her dad died. And this moment right here was, I think, a moment of vulnerability, a moment where her faith was shaken. Maybe her faith in being alone, her faith in not wanting to give in to her vulnerabilities, her emotions as a human being, they're being shaken. And she actually sees a person, much like her dad, as being equally, if not slightly more important than this mission. Now, ultimately, she makes that choice. And I think there's absolute bravery in that. And I don't think that there's a conflict like, oh, yep, she still believes in science. No, I don't think that's what's being said here. I think what's being shown is that decisions even in science are not easy and they're driven and influenced by our emotional state. I don't think there's anybody out there that is completely emotionless when it comes to scientific research and scientific discovery. There's a reason why we want to figure out X or Y or Z. There's a reason. If that reason is because I need to understand more about myself as a human being or more about myself as a man or more about myself as a guy, you know, whatever. In that moment, I thought we got to see the first glimpses of Ellie's vulnerability. And I think that was exacerbated by her trip through the wormhole and the way in which she reacted to seeing this beautiful thing, this planet and these stars. Um, Zemeckis and his creative team, I think, did a fantastic job at kind of morphing all these different facial expressions in that moment, including her younger version. And I'm not saying that that wouldn't have happened had she not had a relationship with Palmer, but I think that it would, it's more believable for me to see that as opposed to her just saying, I'm still recording and, oh my gosh, this is amazing. There's this blue light. It must be a nebulous, blah, 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 blah. No, instead she says poetry. And I, I'd like to believe that that's influenced by the fact that she has this connection with Palmer and even though there's a risk of losing him, it's a risk she's willing to take, but those two things can coexist. She's not choosing science over him necessarily. She says, if I come back. And when she does come back, he's right there with her with a different belief system, but the same goal, the pursuit of truth. And um, that, that moment on the water, I think, is probably the most intimate that we see, and, and I love it. All righty. Well, that will do it for us on this edition of Feelin' Film. Don, before we say goodbye to you, where can people find you on social media and throughout the interwebs to stay in touch with you or conversate more about this movie or other stuff? You bet. Um, I am everymoviehaslesson.com. I'm a staff writer for 25YL, where a lot of my work is published. Um, I'm for at least one more column 
I am the What We Learned This Week contributor here on Feelin' Film. Christmas Day will be the last one. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Casablanca Don, and that's where you can find my work. And uh, it's award season. I'm on a heater, man. The reviews are coming out like crazy. Excellent. Well, if you want to find out more about what he's writing about, be sure to check those places out. This week, we are bringing you a packed, and I mean packed, FF Plus later this week. We are reviewing seven, yes, seven movies spoiler-free for your entertainment. Hopefully the conversation will be great, usually is, and for your education. So you can be sure to check out these seven movies, find out what we think. Uh, be sure to tune in for that. That's coming up later this week. And then following that, Aaron and I will go back to our childhood with our coverage of Flight of the Navigator. Compliance? If you get that reference, then you're cool with us. <laughs> Aaron, Don, thank you guys for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group very active in both places and would love to chat and if you want to connect with me you can find me at shoeless patch on both facebook and twitter be sure to tag me in any comments so that i'll be notified and not miss you once again thank you for listening we'll be back soon until then stay positive and keep feeling filled